Well, good morning. You guys all have a good uh, St. Patrick's Day yesterday? Yeah, you know, being Michael Patrick Moran, you've got to really celebrate, you know, St. Patrick's Day. But you know that St. Patrick was not Irish, right? You all know that, yes. What was he? He was English, yes, that's right. Very good. Who knew that? Yeah, all right, yeah. Yeah, St. Patrick, he's this, he's this dude from England who gets, who gets kidnapped from these barbarians there in Ireland. They take him as a slave. He's a slave for several years. He learns the Irish language. He uh, learns the culture. And then he escapes back to, to Britain. He go, goes back to Britain. While he's back there living up the good life again, he has a dream from God. And God says, go back and become missionary to the Irish. And so he does. And he goes back. And he evangelizes the Irish, the, the land of Ireland. He starts churches all over the place, just starts all sorts of churches. And so uh, we celebrate his day by drinking green beer. <laughs> you know, go figure, right? Yeah. So, hey, how many of you here have ever heard of the phrase uh, a game changer? Right, you've all heard the, the phrase game changer, right? If you, even if you haven't heard the phrase, you kind of know what it means by having a game changer. Uh, Merriam-Webster online uh, defines game changer as this. It says it's a newly introduced element or factor that changes an existing situation or activity in a significant way. It's a newly introduced element or factor that changes an existing situation or activity in a significant way. So some examples of game changers. When Apple introduced the iPod, that was a game changer for the music industry. It changed how we purchase and how we consume uh, our music. Like, uh, how many people still buy CDs these days? Oh, all right. That's like so 04, you know? You know, it's like everyone just downloads it right now. No one owns actual CDs, you know. You know, vinyl is retro again, but, you know, but CDs. Um, who, who knows who this guy is right here? Ah, close. Giannis, right? Giannis for the Bucks. He was a he was a game changer for uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks. First buck ever, youngest buck ever to have four triple doubles in a in a season. Okay, a triple double is when you score double points in uh, three out of the five uh, statistical areas in basketball. He's a, he was the youngest one to score four of those in an entire season. He then went on last uh, this this year. I, I think. He scored his, his ninth triple-double of the season, which may put him above Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as having the one buck with the most triple-doubles. Last year, he led the entire team in every single conceivable scoring, you know, um, you know kind of data point out of the five. You know, rebounds, you know, blocks, assists, points. He, he, led, them, he led them in every single category. That's a, that's a game-changer. That's a game-changer right there. Uh, laws can be game changers too, right? Um, in 1978, Jimmy Carter uh, passed the Home Brewing Act of 1978, which allowed dudes to be able to brew their own beer in their basement, all right? Uh, and now we have this plethora of microbrews and brew pubs all over the country, all over the place. It started in 1978 with, with this guy. I'm, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, folks. I'm just saying it was a... Game changer, right? You know, I just made Jimmy Carter some of your favorite president, some of you guys' favorite president, you know, right there. So game changers, game changers. Game changers are in the Old Testament as well, right? 
You have a nation of slaves that, that, that are rescued out of slavery and are adopted on the other side of the Red Sea to become the people of God. And all of a sudden they're, they're free and they are now led by God to become his people to reflect him in the world. That's a game, game changer. Um, you have a, a, a young boy, 12 years old, when the people of God have their backs up against the wall and their enemies are, are, are dragging the name of God through the, the mud and there's this giant guy and everyone's afraid to, to fight him. This 12-year-old boy steps up and says, I'll, I'll fight him. And he, and he slays the giant and goes on to become the king of all of Israel, uniting the 12 tribes. I mean, it's, it's a game changer. There are all sorts of game changers. But in the New Testament, probably one of the, the biggest game changers that we see is the, the entry of the Holy Spirit into humanity and into the world. The Holy Spirit coming on earth. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. This is where we're going through this whole uh, series, Romans 6, 7, 8. Um, during this series that we're calling uh, Unbound. Okay? And, um, and in Romans 8, someone once said that if, if, if the New Testament were a, a, a mountain range... Romans, the book of Romans would be the Himalayas. And, and Romans chapter 8 would be Mount Everest on, that, on those Himalayas. So we're, we're climbing Mount Everest now. This is just some, some great and grand stuff that we're going through right here. And, uh, and next week, uh, you know, Dan is going to peak Mount Everest. We're going to get to the very peak of Mount Everest next week. But right now we're just, we're just, we're just climbing it. And now, in order to understand Romans 8... We need to understand Romans 7, which is the, the, the kind of the context for Romans 8. And Romans 7 is this unique chapter that talks about the, the, the Christian's relationship with the law of God, which is, which is summarized by the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. And, and even though we know that we've been freed from uh, the exacting demands of the law of God, we can't, we can't keep them in order to be right with God, we're still aware of them, and we still are aware that they reflect the nature and the character and the essence of God, and that they're good and they're right. And we look at them and we're like, there's no way I can keep these. In fact, the law does, does three things. It, you know, it exposes my sin, it, and it shows that I am a sinner. It, it provokes my sin. Okay, it says, When the law says, don't do this, I'm like, don't go across that line. Oh, all of a sudden I want to cut, cut, go just step across that line. So it provokes my sin, and then ultimately it condemns my sin. So it does all that stuff. And, and at the end, so you, we have this passage in Romans chapter 7 right, right, right up there. Paul has this, this, this kind of conflict in, in ourselves, and he says this. He's, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, this I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. That is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Okay, so can, can anyone relate to this at all? That you know what is the right thing to do, but you can't always seem to get yourself to, to do that one thing. Well, some of us, as we read that, we might resonate with the conflict that, that Paul is explaining, is explaining there. And then he cries out the very end of Romans chapter 7, and he says, what a wretched man that I am who is going to rescue me from this, this body of death. 
What Paul needs more than anything right now is a game changer, right? He needs a game changer. Enter Romans chapter 8 and the Holy Spirit. And Romans chapter 8, if you look through Romans chapter 8, it's broken down into really three categories. The first category is Romans is chapters, verses 1 through 11. And the fact that, that it, Romans, in Romans chapter 8, 1 through 11, it, it talks about how we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Past tense. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. Romans 8, chapter 1 begins with, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God moves us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. He moves us from being under condemnation because of our sin to being in Christ Jesus. So we are saved from the penalty from the sins. Then we're saved from the power of sin. In verses 12 to 18, he, he talks about the fact that it's by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that we put to death the, the misdeeds of the body. It's by the Holy Spirit that we're able to actually do that, to actually become holy people. It talks more about our sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. He says that we are led by the Spirit in those, in those verses. It talks about how the Spirit itself reminds us that we're actually children of God. It reminds us who we are. And as we actually understand that we are children of God, we become to live more like, like Him. So we're saved from the, from the penalty of sins. We're saved from the power of sin, verses 12 to 18. And today we're going to talk about that we're going to be saved from the presence of sin, from the very presence of sin. So we're going to read verses uh, 19. Or, I'm sorry, verses 18 through 27 today. And we're going to talk about it a little bit. He says in verse 18, and we'll read through this and then uh, kind of dissect it. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. In accordance with God's will. So he begins this whole section here. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory with the glory that will be revealed in us. So he's talking about sufferings, okay? That harkens back to the verse right before this in verse, in verse 17. He says, now if we're the children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul is saying that as followers of Jesus, it is inevitable that in some way, shape, or form that we are going to share in the sufferings of Christ. Okay? That that if Christ is our leader, we're following after him just as Christ suffered, just as he was persecuted, just 
as he is eventually uh, killed on a cross, that we as his followers can't expect anything different than that. That that is part and parcel of the package of following Jesus. Now, you may be sitting here today and you'll be like, be like, Mike, that's just not, has been my experience. And and if you were to say that, I would I would agree with you. I would say, yeah, absolutely, that, that's probably true for most Christians in America. But this is what I remind people everywhere all the time, is that if you look at all of church history, and if you look at all of what is going on around the world today, folks, we are the exception. We are the anomaly to the, what, what the record is of history. And, and the, the danger is, is that we begin to think that what we are currently experiencing in this, in this country, in this great country where we, have, where we have great freedoms, is the norm and should be the norm for everybody. And when you read the Bible, it's exactly the opposite, folks. The Bible is written primarily to people who experience suffering, who know suffering, who are anticipating suffering in a huge way. And this is the way that it is all around the world today. Um, I just got back from a trip to India. And, um, and India is primarily a, a Hindu nation, uh, there's also a large minority of Muslims as well. Christians are the are the vast minority. And there's a there's a, a story of a Hindu believer who was going around preaching the gospel, proclaiming Jesus. He would go around from village to village, talking to people about who Jesus was. And um, and the, the radical Hindus got so so upset with him that they concocted a plan. And they said, next time this guy comes in to our area, we're going to teach him a lesson. And they did. They grabbed him, they poured uh, hot boiling oil down his throat, seared his vocal cords so he couldn't speak any longer. But you know what he did? He went around from village to village whispering the gospel. He's called today the whispering Christian because he'll go around and he will still, regardless, talk to anyone who's willing to listen about the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. And that's, that is the vast, vast uh, majority of experience that people, that people experience. Now, you know, if you, now, you know, if you live for Jesus Christ, if you want to live a holy life, First Peter tells us that everyone who wants to live a holy life in Jesus Christ is going to experience persecution of some way, kind, shape, or form. That's just that persecution that we experience here is, is really, really on a minor scale compared to the rest of the world. So, he says that, that, you know, we consider that our present sufferings, what we're going through right now, what most of the world right now is going through, is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, glory is one of those Bible words, right? <laughs> it's one of those words that we don't use in real life. How many of you have ever used word, the word glory in casual conversation? Boy, this is a great meal, honey. It's just glorious. You know, <laughs> you don't say that. So it's a Bible word. So it, it, we, we tend to not know what it means sometimes. It can, it can mean several things. Sometimes glory means like credit or honor. You can say, hey, give God, God glory that's, that's due him. So you can say, give God the credit that's due him. It can mean something like majesty. Like the, the, and then the angels appear at, you know, to the shepherds. This is the glory of the Lord shown around them. So it can mean like majestic glory right there, which is awe-inspiring glory. But it also has... This, this connotation of eternity, of the, the fact that when, when Jesus comes back, and in Matthew 25 it says, when the Son of Man returns in all of his glory, um, and, and it has to do with this time 
uh, of, of, of eternity, that we're going to see God as he is, and we're going to see him in all of his glory. And so glory uh, in the New Testament can also be a synonym for eternity. It's going to be that time and that place when we live forever in eternity in a glorified body, just like Jesus rose from the dead in a glorified body, we're going to have glorified bodies as well. And so this, uh, this word glory refers to this here. And right here Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us and the glory that we're going to experience when Jesus Christ comes uh, uh, again. And so in order to um, understand this, this whole concept of, of this kind of glory and eternity, I wanted to go through a chart with you. And I have done this chart before, but I, it, it always is helpful, uh, I think, to people to understand how it works. The ancient Jews divided history into two grand eras or epochs. You know, there was the old age that they call the old age of, this is the age of sin and death and unrighteousness. This is the age that the Jews understood that they were currently in. But they knew that Messiah was going to come. And on, when Messiah comes, it's going to be that great and glorious and dreadful day of the Lord. Okay, day of the Lord. And, um, and on that day that he was going to judge people and uh, Israel was going to be put on top. And he was going to usher in this new age, or this age to come. They called it the age to come. And this was a day, an age of righteousness, an age of goodness, an age of, just, an age of justice and, a, and of life. And, um, and this is what the Jews were anticipating. Now, now, Jesus Christ came, and he claimed in Luke chapter 4 that he was the Messiah. He was the one that they were waiting for. They, um, he, he proved that... He was demonstrating the kingdom by casting out demons and healing people. And so he proved that this, this, this age to come had arrived, this age of the spirit, where, where he had control over the evil forces and stuff like that. But what happened is that they crucified Jesus, and they killed him. And this old age continued even after Jesus came, appeared, lived, and then died again. But something happened in Acts chapter 2, which is what Jesus alludes to in John 14 and 16, is that the Holy Spirit comes and falls on the believers and falls on humanity. And in, the Holy Spirit is injected into our experience, into our world at that time. And now we are living in this time when the old age continues, this, the age of sin and death and unrighteousness, right? We still experience that in this world. But... We understand that we have the first fruits of the age to come, the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says again, Matthew 25, that he's going to come again and he's going to set the world to rights. He's going to usher in his kingdom in all of its fullness and all of its completion and all of its glory. And so right now we live in this age where the old age is still existing. We still have sin and death and we get colds and cancer and, and all sorts of stuff. But we have what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the, the verses that we're looking at, the first fruits of the age to come, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us things, that, the ability and the power to be like, like Christ. The fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 6, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, gentleness, 
and self-control. Those are all things that the Spirit produces in us. Those are evidences of the age to come. Okay? Now, there's going to come a day, there's going to come a day when things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control are going to be the law of the land. They're going to be as normal and as natural as water running downhill or smoke rising. Okay? That's just going to be that way. That's, 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 a good, that's going to be a good day, right? We're going to have glorified bodies and stuff like that. But in the meantime, we have the first fruits of that, this first fruits of the Spirit in us that, uh, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. So he goes on. He says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God. Do you guys all get this? Does this make sense? Right here? I kind of whipped whip through this. Okay. It says that the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation itself was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hopes that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So what Paul is saying here is that even the world itself, even creation itself, is waiting for this old age to pass away. Because it still is held captive to the old age, the age that was defined by sin and unrighteousness and all of the, the, the results of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, right? You'll remember in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve made that disastrous decision, right, to rebel against their creator. And, and God uh, makes this claim to, um, to Adam and Eve. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. How many of you have tended a garden? Right? <laughs> We're in Kiwaskum, right? Everybody has a garden, right? Yeah. Is that easy work or is that hard work? That's hard, right? That's hard stuff. I mean, when we came back, when we moved back from Russia, the, the, the house that we bought had a fenced-in garden plot around it. And we thought to ourselves, this is cool. We'll teach our kids how to garden. You know, we'll, you know, we're all, this will be a family affair and stuff like that. I, it's like hard work. Like everything wants to grow in that garden except the plants that we planted. I'm like weeds are growing and stuff like that. And, and what Paul is saying here is that the whole world is subjected to frustration. The Greek word there, frustration, means that it is not fulfilling the desired intent that it was created for. And all of creation is like this. We're all, the whole world is tainted by sin. And even the world itself is, is, is waiting to be redeemed out of this brokenness that, they are, that it's in in the old age. And it says not only is this creation waiting and, and waiting for the future glory, but we as believers groan as we wait for the consummation of our adoption, the future redemption of our bodies. Verse 23 not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Okay, here it is, the first fruits of the Spirit. We're living in this time of the Spirit that's been poured out on humanity. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of our sons, the redemption of our bodies. This point when Jesus comes again and our bodies are going to be fully redeemed, we are going to have complete and full glorious bodies. You know, we're going to be resurrected like Jesus was resurrected. I don't know all the ins and outs of how that works. Paul goes into it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're interested, what it will look like when we're resurrected. But what's going to essentially happen here is that 
God is going to weed out, okay, Matthew 13, God is going to weed out everything in his kingdom that causes people to sin and all who do evil, okay? Heaven and earth are going to collide, okay? This earth is going to be completely and totally and utterly remade without sin, okay? Now, everybody thinks that heaven is our home, okay? If you're, if you're a Christian here, you think, okay, heaven is my home. When I die, I'm going to go to be with heaven. Heaven is not our home. Okay, I know that that may sound shocking to some of you. Heaven is a temporary place that we'll go to when we die. But our home, our ultimate home, according to Scripture, is new heaven and new earth, a physical world. This world is going to be remade. It's going to have all the sin ripped out of it. And we're going to live in a brand new heaven, a brand new heaven and earth where heaven and earth essentially collide. Now, for some of us here, that's really good news. Because we grew up with the fact thinking that eternity is going to be like one extended, prolonged church service. And I'm a pastor, and that doesn't excite me. All right? But, but thinking that this world is going to be redeemed, and this incredible world that we live in is going to be without sin and without brokenness, and that everybody that you meet is going to be kind and compassionate and loving... Can you think of, can you wait for that? I mean, that's like, and so Paul says we wait, we long eagerly, longing and wait for the redemption of our bodies. We just can't wait for that to happen. And sometimes I think as Christians, we don't understand this well enough because we don't really anticipate that day. In fact, one person said it this way, he said, why should I sing about having a mansion over the hill when I got one right here? You know? I mean, this world is pretty good, but, it, but we're, we're living in a dump compared to what God has in, in store for us. Um, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. Can we put those verses up where it talks about the deposit? That, that the Holy Spirit in us is, is a deposit guaranteeing what will come. Three times he talks about this. Now is God who made us, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now is God who made us, uh, both us and you, to stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, as a down payment, guaranteeing what is to come, guaranteeing this day when we're going to live in the fullness of his presence and the kingdom, and we're going to see him face to face. So the spirit is a down payment or a deposit, guaranteeing it. Same thing said in Second Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, throw up the Ephesians verse up there as well, please. He says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, okay, this all happens. We've received the Holy Spirit when we believe. That's when we, when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we believe in Jesus. You are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of the Lord. So right here, again, the redemption of our body. And the Holy Spirit inside of each one of us, the, the life of the believer, is a deposit, is a down payment guaranteeing that day. That, that word deposit or down payment is, kind of has the illusion that we think of, of a, an engagement ring. Okay? So, you know, you know, Alice and Luke, when you guys got married, right? Luke, did, did you, you gave Allison an, an engagement ring? Okay, good. Now, what did that engagement ring mean? It was a promise, right? There's a promise that one day you were going to come and take her to be your bride, you know, your wife. And so Allison held on to that engagement ring and said, like, I got a promise right here. This is it. We're getting hitched. 
right here. And she couldn't wait for that day to come when they were going to get married. You know, and that promise, that engagement ring was the sign. It was the seal. It was the deposit that was going to happen. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit inside of us is the same thing. It's our engagement ring. We are promised that Jesus is going to come back He's going to, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead of everyone who believed in him. We're going to have glorified bodies, and we're going to live with him forever in a new world, in a new heaven, a new earth. Is that good news? That's good news. Yes, that's really good news. In, in Revelations, at the very end, 21, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth, had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I don't know what uh, John has against the sea. I think it's because he was trapped on the island of Patmos at the time. He says, I'm not going to be trapped any longer. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven uh, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. We're going to be fully and consummated. Right now we have the Holy Spirit, the first fruit, the deposit of this time. That's going to be the wedding day. That's going to be the wedding day, okay? And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And this is what we are waiting for, folks. And the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a promise guaranteeing that one day, one day that is going to happen. This week on Friday, I sat down with a man and uh, got to know him a little bit. And I said, hey, tell me a story. And uh, he was doing really good until he got to the point when his son died in a car accident. Many of you may have heard about Matt Heinen two years ago. They're coming up on two years. He's a counselor up in, um, up in Fond du Lac. And he was going, traveling from his, his home in Cedar Grove on 23 and hit ice on that April morning. They're coming up in two years. And was, died instantly. And, uh, and he was a believer. Matt was a strong believer in, in Christ and a leader in his church. And his dad, Mike, um, to this day, obviously, still going through some acute pain and longing for his son but but mike has this hope he knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that he will see his son again when our bodies are redeemed anytime he has he has the holy spirit inside of him this this deposit guaranteeing that 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 day will come he will he will see his son again all this pain that we experience, all, all the suffering that we go through, everything like this, one day it's going to be like a bad dream that we will wake up from and we will be with God uh, forever in, in, in a new heaven and a new earth. And that changes everything. That changes everything. He says, uh, he says for in this hope we were saved. He says, but... Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? You know, but he, you know, who hopes for what he already has? That doesn't make any sense. You already have it. You don't hope for it. You don't want it. But he says, but we hope for what we do not yet have, and we wait for it.
patiently. I want to encourage all of you today that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I don't know what kind of things you may be going through. You may be going through some physical difficulties. You may be going through some heartaches, some relational difficulties. You may be being persecuted because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And at work, there are no other followers of Jesus Christ. My kids come back from school and they're like, Dad, you don't understand. There are no other Christians in my school. I'm like, Come on, there's got to be some. I'm like, no, Dad. It's like, we're, we're the only ones. And, uh, and you may be picked on. You may be ridiculed. Paul tells us right here, we need to wait patiently for the redemption of our bodies. But in the meantime, we have that wedding ring, that engagement ring, that promise from God that one day all things will be set to right. In the meantime, he tells us that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He even teaches us how to pray. It produces Christ-like you know, fruit in us. And it continues to help us to be more and more like Jesus as we wait for that day to come. So I want to encourage you as we go through this great book of Romans, I want to encourage you to read it, absorb it, meditate upon it, think about it. There's so much other stuff we could have talked about here, but we just don't have time for it right now. So let me pray for you. The worship team comes and leads us in a few more songs. Father God, we just scratched uh, the surface here <coughs> of all that you have in mind as we look at these, these nine verses from Romans. We look around and um, there's no doubt in our mind that this world is groaning. We see it on the news every night. We see uh, the, the increase in catastrophes and in in the, the changing in, in the, the world's temperatures and all this stuff that's going on. We wonder what's going on. Well, the, the world is groaning. It's groaning. It's, it's, it's subject to futility. It doesn't go the way, it doesn't do what it was designed to do. And we see this in our own bodies too. We see the brokenness in our own bodies as well. And we are so, so thankful for the Holy Spirit that we live in this time between the, the, the overlapping of the ages, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, when the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Not only as a deposit guaranteeing, he's the one who produces in us the fruits of the kingdom. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now I pray for all of my friends here at Kettlebrook, that you would remind them of these truths, of the Spirit, that you'd be producing in them more and more the fruits of this future age of the kingdom, that you'd be reminding them that they are sons and daughters of you, that you'd be reminding them that a day is coming and that they would, they would wait with hope and anticipation for that future day. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.